it's uh, I think useful as we look at the intention, the intentions of goodwill and non-harming, or compassion tonight, and just generally this second part of the wisdom category of the Eightfold Path, right view and right intention, and just getting a sense of how easy it is for us to get locked in. When we have self-view, then we have the intentions of greed, how can I give the self what I think it wants, how can I get rid of what the self is afraid of. You know, and then we have actions acting out that greed and aversion in the world. And all that action, that activity of greed and aversion, it sort of sets in motion over time, a whole way of being, a way of thinking. That is our character. It informs our dispositions. It sort of, that's how we become who we are, which of course reinforces the self-view. Like when we're feeling the squeeze of anxiety, it's just so easy to feel like this is happening to me because it feels like it's happening to me. That anxiety, that squeeze feels, I mean, the, the very nature of that squeeze of anxiety or fear makes it feel like I'm here alone. And if I don't do something to take care of myself, you know, nobody's going to. I, I have to step in. I have to fight and control and create some safety. We never bother, you know, to see what what appears to be a problem. We never bother to actually see if it's a problem. We just assume because it hurts, because if there's a squeeze, it is a problem. So we launch, we trust those intentions of greed and aversion. We trust the actions that flow out of that. We reinforce the sort of mental activity that's involved in the actions of greed and aversion, reinforcing that sense of separation, the wrong view. Forget if I read this poem last week. Did I read the Dakini Speaks? Maybe it was in one of the retreats I read it. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is not, this is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. 
Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. I've been using that uh, phrase from Milarepa's, uh, actually it's not him, it's the uh, demons get transformed, you know, through his practice, the negative tendencies of his mind get transformed into uh, a dakini, which are these uh, thought of in the Tibetan tradition as sort of feminine energies, uh, enlightenment energies, supports for practice. And these... uh, Demons who get transformed, they, they sing to Milarepa, this patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism who lived long, long ago. Uh, they sing to him on the steep slope of fear and hope. The demons lie in waiting, right? So when we get, when we have the view that involves fear and hope, then guaranteed the demons will be there waiting for us. So uh, we'll have our small groups later tonight. And uh, what I suggested last week you might want to share in the small groups is this cycle that we can get locked into and now we can break out of. So we have, from basically subtle to gross, we have view, basic understanding that's operating, that we're living out of. And just to keep it simple, self-view Right? Seeing, understanding as if there is something apart that needs to be protected. So we have self-view. And then we have the natural intentions that flow from self-view, which would be fear or aversion and greed. And the, you know, like willing to harm. Willing to take what's not ours because of like that view that there's somebody here who really needs it. So then we can, because we're apart, we can justify taking what we think we need, which is the story of our history as human beings. Certainly the story of civilization. And then action flows from those intentions. We interact, we do things in the world. And we can't we can't do things in the world without the mind being involved in all that activity. And the way it works, like karma, the way uh, consequences or results are set in motion, it's one thing to have the thought that person's bad, you know, somebody should do something. And it's a whole different kind of force in the mind when I take that thought and I say, yeah, and I'm the one who's going to do something, and then I go out and do something then the force of the mind is very different. So when I'm acting on my greed and aversion, then the mind gets locked in to that. The the imprint makes a strong imprint. That's what we mean by like the character. We become that person. If we do something every day, if we act out some intention every day, we have to appreciate what a force it is. I'm constantly 
I think, respectful and intimidated um, by this truth. You know, I see myself acting out intentions that aren't all that wholesome. And I have some sense that every time I let myself act that out, it becomes, I mean, that's who we are. If we're anything, we're the cumulative dispositional inventory, (laughs) which has basically been set down, that imprint has been set down through acting out. Was it here, Patrice, where you talked about being snarky <laughs> at the Buddhist studies last week? Is that, you know, and, and it's like, uh, we have to appreciate, like, all the times I've been indulgent, you know, like, basically acting out some version of, oh, poor me. I deserve to, you know, entertain myself with TV, or I deserve to eat some sweets, or I deserve, but that, oh, poor me, well, that gets laid down. So even when I finally, you know, get a sense of like, oh, I don't really want to be cultivating this kind of heart or mind, I have to appreciate how much has been set in motion. It's not so easy in one moment to see that force and see it's just what it is. But it requires feeling the cumulative effect of all those imprints. And that is unpleasant. It's really unpleasant. And you know, it always occurs to us, like, why is this practice so hard? Like, why being a good person is so hard? When we hear things like from Buddhist teachers that say things like, you know, it's just stuff happening on its own. <laughs> it's like, well, why is it so hard? Because nature is just happening on its own and part of what nature is, is realizing that what's happening on its own is not very helpful or skillful. So part of what nature is doing is saying, I'm going to resist the pull of nature. Right? Nature's flowing this way to being indulgent or being snarky or being whatever. And, and part of nature is that wisdom and is understanding where that goes, what that leads to and saying, no, that's, That's not what I want to set in motion. And so we talked about this last week in terms of substitution, right? Where we see the force of ill will, irritation, impatience in the mind, and we substitute in kindness or patience or forgiveness or whatever works, basically. But, you know, the Buddha has a whole spectrum like when when the practice is really strong, simply seeing the unwholesomeness of the intention, like seeing where greed goes or the flavor of greed, the hardness, the fixedness, the heaviness of greed or aversion is enough. Just a moment of mindfulness is enough to transform that demon. And it's gone. But sometimes we have to, we may not want to, but the moment is really asking us to show up and to insert a different point of view, a different resolve in the mind, a different intention in the mind. It's not the predominant intention, but we pick it up and we put it in. I'm going to practice being kind here. I don't feel like being kind, but I'm going to practice. And the point that Patrice made last week was, you know, she's just really made a point 
a determined point to not, I mean, the snarkiness may be there, but to then realize, like, make the mind remember or recognize we're all doing our best here. It's not helping matters being aversive. And it starts laying down new imprints in the mind. And it gets easier and easier. And the Buddha gives in, in one of the discourses, most of you have probably seen it, it's in the middle length discourses. Uh, 20 in the middle length discourses. The one translation is the removal of distracting thoughts. And Ajahn Tanisaro calls it the relaxation of thoughts. This discourse the Buddha gives where he's basically telling us how to transform intention. So when we have negative intentions like greed and aversion, how do we bring in kindness or compassion or a letting go, the letting go of renunciation? And so this is like when mindfulness doesn't work, just seeing the negative intention isn't enough. So we can substitute, but we can also just contemplate what's being set in motion. And he likens this to seeing as if we had a necklace of rotting flesh around our head. Like, oh, this is disgusting. I do not want to set this in motion. This is not the kind of person, the kind of heart that I want to cultivate. And I find that I have to use that regularly like so is this the sort of person I want to be and when that doesn't work just ignoring right and you think this is like just the opposite of what we practice which is being honest and open but there are times when we just can't look at something because if we do we'll get seduced so we find something we can look at, we can absorb into. doesn't really matter what it is, as long as it's not that thing that's going to lead to us acting out in an unskillful way. And if that doesn't work, we think about it. And so where the second strategy is we see what's getting set in motion, this next strategy is we're thinking about where this came from. So we're tracing back. What led to this? How come I have this aversion, this irritation? What came before? What came before that? What came before that? So tracing back, getting a sense of the lawfulness of it. And maybe as we trace back to more subtle, like once it has a head of steam, it may, the mind might be quite compelled to act it out in an unskillful way. But if we trace back, we can recognize what's getting set in motion but at a more subtle level where we can maybe not be as reactive. Oh, it's just this. Okay, well, I, I don't need to react to that. It's like uh, in our relationships, some things can seem really huge, and it's just like, I have to say something. But when we reflect back, we realize, actually, the reason why this feels totally unacceptable isn't so much what this person just did or said, but all these other ingredients are there, like I've had a headache all day, and then there was traffic on the way home, and I didn't have time to eat a good lunch, and 
And so then when that person said this thing or did this thing, and now it feels so right to hit back, to do something back to this person to get revenge. But because I trace back, I see it's really not what needs to be done. I just need to have some good food. Or I just need to rest. Or I just need to do these other things. And the last is, the Buddha says, to crush mind with mind. It's sometimes repression using the force of will. Basically, finding some intention that's bigger than the intention that's not so skillful to stand in front of the intention that's not too too skillful and say, no, you're not going to do that. I'm not going to let you act out in that way. Of course, it doesn't always work, but it's good to, like I was saying earlier, in terms of karma, in terms of what actually gets laid down in the body and mind, or this dynamic of body and mind, acting on intention makes the imprint deeper, stronger. So, if there's even a little intention that recognizes that this in- this other intention is unskillful, instead of just getting swept away by the bigger intention that has more force in that moment, it'd be better, even if it's going to be completely defeated, to act on this more subtle intention because it will strengthen it. To take the attention off this intention and put it on this intention and see the rightness of it or the goodness of it enough to act on it, to do something in the world, to say something, to think something, to act it out in some way, then makes the mind stream have the imprint of that intention. So the mind that goes forward is the mind that recognized that wholesome intention, trusted it, and acted on it. So that's part of the mind that goes forward now. Not the mind that said, might as well just indulge in this. Even though I know it's not good for me, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, then we, the mind, that means you and me, we become the mind that doesn't think it's worth, uh, you know, doing the best we can to stop acting out in unskillful ways. It's basically we're confirming or reinforcing helplessness. Well, who wants to do that? I mean, what does that, Set in motion. I keep thinking you're raising your hand. <laughs> Shelly broke her arm on Friday night. Meta, meta, meta love. <laughs> May those bones heal. And while we're talking about Shelly, if anybody has some extra time in the next several weeks and want to come in and hang out with a really delightful person and do some typing for her while she talks to you and her Wonderful voice. Just check in with Shelley and she'll schedule you in one of the days that she's here and she could use a typer. So, we want to have a real sense of how we get locked in with view, intention or resolve in the mind, acting it out, becoming part of the dispositional, sort of like gets institutionalized in our mind, which reinforces that view, so we get locked in. And so the question is, well, how do we intervene? Well, basically, we can intervene at all different levels. When we're intervening on the level of 
action, then we're practicing restraint, right? Like, no, you won't. <laughs> yes, I will. No, you won't. <laughs> you know, and that's like mind crushing mind. And sometimes that's all we're doing. We really want to do it. And we really don't want to do it because we have some sense that it's not good to do it. But that's how we practice. And we practice at the level of thought or resolve in the ways that I've just been talking about, like substituting other thoughts or recognizing the unwholesomeness of that thought as if it was something disgusting that we were dressing up with. Like, why would I want to dress up in this way? It's disgusting. Why would I want to become the person who thinks this way, who wants this, who believes this? And we can intervene uh, intervene on the level of view. The most subtle and ultimately the most powerful, but it requires to intervene on the level of view, requires a lot of confidence, a lot of, first of all, we need a lot of space in the mind because the tendency is for a mind to have that tunnel vision where that's what view does. That's what a fixed view does. It narrows the vision of the mind and we basically become the being seen through the eyes of that view. And wisdom, like one of the definitions of wisdom is a sense of space where the mind recognizes there are different options for views. Right? Narrow views, broader views, tender views, hard views. And the mind has a sense where I could be this monstrous beast, I could be this kind-hearted, tender being, I could be open space, I could be contracted, little tight entity, and sees like like different costumes that we can put on and get lost in. And so when we have that space, then we can go from falling into wrong view with all the resolves that or thoughts, intentions that flow out of it, actions that flow out of it, and in a moment, with no friction, we can be a different being living out of a different view with different intentions and different action. And I'm sure some of you at least, maybe all of you, have had those moments. It can feel a little weird where you know, we were in a very narrow, tight, and really not like faking it. We were really mean or angry or um, inappropriate. And then it just, fortunately, because of practice, there's enough space. And in an instant, kind-hearted tenderness. I, I tell the story sometimes. I forget if I mentioned it recently in this group, in this class, but just one moment in walking meditation during one of the three-month retreats in the 90s at IMS. And uh, and my mind was just kind of getting frustrated by the wandering of the mind. And uh, so I was just walking. And there, once again, that bad mind started thinking about something that I was supposed to be thinking about. And this, uh, this the sort of cumulative frustration and anger just rose up like a monster. You know, I can't had it this is you know and but there was enough residual mindfulness so it saw the monster arise and when the when wisdom sees suffering monsters are suffering then compassion is there and it was like i went from being in 
just second, not even seconds from like this frustrated, angry, uh, you know, just like a child sometimes lashing out, you know, I can't, no, sort of feeling <laughs> to this, this unblemished, complete, full compassion. Just, and the whole, my whole heart, mind, body just opened wide open. The whole, I mean, it's one of the more beautiful moments of my life from, you know, just a rageful self-hatred to unconditional love. And so this is what space or wisdom, when mindfulness and wisdom is there, it can switch on a dime. So we want to have a sense and we want to be willing to practice at each place along that spectrum, from the subtle on the level of view on the level of the resolve or the intentions, recognizing them, and on the level of action, like what we refrain from doing. I'm not going to do that. I want to do it, but I'm not going to do it. Like you have an itch, you know, but you know you shouldn't scratch the itch. You have a rash and it doesn't do well if you scratch it. You really want, but you refrain because you know. The intention to scratch is there. It's strong. And you might even indulge in it, like imagining how nice it would feel to scratch. Weren't you feeling that with the <laughs> getting in underneath the, or the wrap you had? So we know that, we know how valuable that can be because we know how destructive it is when we don't listen to that restraint, the voice of restraint. Oh, you've eaten enough. Oh, but I want more. No, no, really. Look, you're full. No, no, no. I mean, we literally, if we didn't have that wisdom of restraint, we'd be dead. We'd, we would have done so many things that would have led to ill health and probably worse. So we, we all have that. In the same way that we have a sense of what resolves, what intentions we trust, what intentions we don't trust. And so we have this map, you know, that we can use of goodwill and renunciation and non-harming or compassion, like on that level. And we have a sense of view. I wanted to, just before we break into small groups, read a little bit more about right view as we finish up our course. This is from Joseph talking about view. He says, as long as the strong reference point of self is the central understanding of our lives, as it is for most people, we spend an endless amount of energy trying to gratify the self, defend it, hold to it, protect it. All of this very potent karmic activity is revolving around something that isn't even there. This is the great power of delusion in our minds. And we have to respect how convincing it is because when we have wrong view, self-view, and the intentions that flow out of it, and we act on those intentions, and we've done that for, as the Buddha would say, would say, an amount of time that is inconceivable, right? That this mind stream has been playing that out for an inconceivable amount of time, then we have to respect how, like, how it feels so personal because this pattern has laid down one layer at a time of karmic activity 
a real weight, a real sense of weight or contraction. So when we, when the mind does what the mind naturally does, it's sensitive, it feels karmic weight. It's impersonal, but it's there nonetheless, right? So that karmic weight, without wisdom, there's no choice but to interpret it as, well, of course, I need to do something about this weight. So it's an actually an act. All the neurotic activity we engage in is an act of compassion. But it's an act of compassion arising out of wrong view. That there's somebody that's hurting. Just because there's psychic weight doesn't mean there's somebody hurting. That's, that's the right view intervention. Here's a few words from the Buddha before we break into groups. And this is another graphic image from the Buddha about wrong view. Suppose, practitioners, a dog tied up on a leash was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on revolving around that same post. So too, uninstructed worldlings, i.e. you and me, <laughs> regard form as self, feeling as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. They just keep running and revolving around form feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, another way of saying intention, around consciousness. And they keep running and revolving around them. They are not freed from them. They are not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, not freed from suffering. Then another place the Buddha says, practitioners, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose practitioners, people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, the branches, the leaves in this jetta grove or burn them or do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off or burning us or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir, because those things are neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So too, practitioners, form is not yours, feeling is not yours, perception is not yours, volitional formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon it, right? Abandon the attachment to it. When you have abandoned that, uh, when you have abandoned, what you have abandoned will lead to your welfare and happiness. So I mentioned last week some things you might chat, bring up in the small groups. Um, so to just uh, remind yourself, like you could think of a time, and you could bring it up right now, when you were really feeling light and relatively free, the heart relatively open. And then just share with the small group as you remember that time, like what were the actions? What were the intentions or resolves in the mind? What view might have the mind been operating out of in that moment or those moments where, at least as you remember it, seemed pretty free? And then you might also share a time, if you might bring it to mind now, like where you, the mind felt really tight and there seemed to be somebody who was suffering very clearly, somebody who was suffering, and then do the same thing. 
what were the actions that I was compelled to act out? What thoughts, what words, what actions or deeds? What intentions, that sort of force, that volitional force, did you notice in the mind? And what kind of view, how was the mind interpreting or understanding or <coughs> viewing things? What understanding was operating? And you can share too, like, what are the common views, common intentions, and what sort of dispositional weight or, you know, what is it, what are those views and intentions institutionalizing in the body and mind in terms of like karmic result, karmic tendencies, we say sometimes. And then the last thing you might, just as sharing some ideas that you might bring up is, you know, when you think of these, what the Buddha calls the these right intentions, you know, the intention of goodwill, the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-harming or compassion. It's like, well, what, what are the disadvantages that you have seen about these right intentions? Like, why aren't our minds regularly operating, sort of relying on these intentions to get through life. What disadvantages do we think are there with basic goodwill, basic compassion, sense of generosity and renunciation or contentedness? What's the disadvantage? What are we afraid of? Or why aren't they trusted? And you can go again to the view, like what what's not trusted about the view or are they dysfunctional in the world? Like the actions don't make sense in the world? What have we learned about those intentions that keep them from, keep the heart from investing in them? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.